Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to this uh, webinar, which was entitled sort of COVID um, virtual ward um, follow-up from the previous webinar uh, where we had lots of people attending. It has probably changed slightly, so the, the name has changed for various reasons. Um, but, you know, it doesn't take um, anybody on the call who, who probably hasn't watched the news to see the numbers of patients with COVID nationally have increased significantly and gone beyond the peak of the first wave. And that is not just happening in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and Northern England. Um, you can see the data we're getting locally, the number of people being admitted to hospital and going to ITU is increasing almost by the day. So we're well and truly into the second wave. Um, and clearly the number of people who are tested positive for COVID is significantly increased. Now, how much that is because we're testing more people or how much it is because truly the circulating COVID in the community is going up. We're also seeing some of that local data is showing that it's not just young people who are getting COVID, although there were significant spikes in the university towns. We're seeing it across all age groups, which is what is concerning. So going into this phase of COVID, it then makes two things really crucial. One is the what we're going to talk about in a minute, the uh, monitoring people at home and the pulse oximetry and the silent hypoxia. And secondly, um, the vaccination programme. And this webinar is not about the vaccination programme, although um, once we've our speakers have spoken, I'll just do a quick five minute update, but we'll do another event on the COVID vaccination programme, which is again, critical to getting us out of this. Okay, okay. So, yeah. so can I welcome Karen, um, who's again part of the national team leading on this work, but also is a local GP and the vice chair in Dorset. Thanks, thanks Nigel. So just reflections uh, on the last few, um, particularly the last few uh, days and weeks compared to the previous few months when we were um, working with many of the first wave um, sites who were trying to get remote monitoring up and running. This is how it feels from my perspective. I think the most important thing is that this feels much more coordinated and structured as a response with systems now planning carefully about how they are um, going to stand up um, their own local implementation of the um, remote monitoring. So um, that feels very, very different to what in the initial stages was um, we kind of got going and, and uh, Kildare and Caroline, Matt told you at, um, last time in the, on the last webinar about how they just got going with it which was incredible and love that spirit. And we need to have that, create that same spirit, but in a slightly more planned way. And that, that I think uh, is what we are able to do. I think the second thing is it does feel a bit more like a, a system join up. I know there were many, many secondary care pilots uh, sort of dominated the, the remote monitoring, but it feels much more now like this, it, this, this is fast becoming a, a system-wide join-up piece. Um, funding is available. You might, you might have seen the letter that dropped into our um, boxes uh, this morning detailing that um, there is £150 million coming to primary care, and it's, and it's not just for remote monitoring, but for other things, but that is specifically named. So there is uh, at least some funding to support what we do, which is great. The equipment is available, the oximeters are bought, there's more on order. So just make sure that, that, you're, that you have availed yourself of that opportunity, both uh, in general practice, but also, um, and I'm working particularly on this plan in Dorset, 
making sure the acute hospitals have enough, making sure they're in urgent care. We're going to plan to put them in ambulances so that at every point of access where a patient needs them, um, they are available. Matt's terrific work on the algorithms, the patient safety information, Matt's, um, Matt Hamilton's video on the informatics, all of that is now circulating with competencies. So it should feel that um, uh, local areas are really well supported now to avail themselves of all of that information and build on that. There's lots and lots of uh, standard operating procedures, you know, steal with pride, implement, embed, and, and kind of just make sure that um, everything that has been shared so willingly from all the amazing people that have done this work um, is, is used in your local area. And then we've got the AHSN support with the patient safety collaboratives, which Matt described last time. Um, I think the other thing for me is testing kits. Now I would talk to your local areas. Of course, we do have the testing kits available to come into primary care. This for me was never around widespread testing and, and circumventing the pillar two. This is about being able to test uh, really clinically appropriate people. Um, I, in my area, have worked in Dorset with my local labs to make sure that I can actually use some of their tests so we can get a 24-hour turnaround for those patients that we are, are clinically suspected um, having COVID. So my advice to you in all your areas is just have the conversation, break down the barrier, talk to whoever you need to get the to get what you need in place to be able to support you. And if that means extra pickups and path at the end of the day, then you need to have that support with your commissioners too. So look at it in the widest um, kind of area. Um, and, and pulling all of that together, I know primary care networks are working together to try and pull the searches for the pillar two tests so that in very real time, GPs can look at who's become positive in the last 24 hours. Um, and then onboarding, use of volunteers to be able to get um, test, uh, test the packs out to patients with the oximeters and also to return them. Um, thinking about how you join up with out of hours, central monitoring where you can make the most of all of your resources. Um, and then thinking about the what's next is the digital. What, what systems are there out there that might help um, you to implement and grow your service, but using a digital means, dashboards that are digitally representative of where you need to look, where the patients are deteriorating. So I think for me, um, that is the kind of the next step for those of you who already got going on the process. And I know Tara Donnelly from NHSX um, has just tweeted uh, this morning about um, funds that are available for local areas and I know our academic health science network is supporting us with thinking about our approach to digital going forward. And then finally, and then I'll hand over to Matt, is this issue about ongoing research, really critically important that we work together um, to make sure that we use the right code so that we can do the research, we can do the evaluation um, and need to start thinking a little bit more probably at the beginning of the process with patients about the consents that might need so that, that we might need to be able to use that data in a really meaningful way. So I think loads has moved on. I think the other amazing thing that happened in Dorset last week was we managed to get a central remote monitoring working with Dorset Healthcare as our community um, trust. We've got all teams working on the on the kind of the the ability to be able to refer in very easily into that system, and we've broken down the barriers with all the acute trusts, so that we've got an onboarding from the acutes and into our remote monitoring, and they will see our patients in return. So it feels like a, an absolutely immense inspirational piece of work by everyone around the system to to make sure that this is truly joined up for patients. So I'm. I'm feeling really positive today and I hope you all are too and I'm going to hand over to Matt now. 
Thanks, Matt. So thank you, Karen. Um, somebody who, who is, uh, again, inspirational. I'd like to, to welcome Matt in Ardekin. And thank you for giving up your valuable time, because every time I speak to you, you're rushing off to yet another meeting. So your days uh, must be incredibly busy. Um, with the popularity that you engender, we've now got 260 people on this webinar, which is fantastic. Um, so Matt is a consultant in Hampshire Hospitals, but also is one of the national leads who not only is looking at um, the COVID response in this area, but in the um, National Deterioration Forum takes a lead for critical care. So uh, over to you, Matt. Oh, thank you, Nigel. Very over generous as always. And, and just to say, uh, the, the other people on this call are the real leads of this, um, none more so than Karen, who's just come off, but, um, and yourself. But just to give you a, a sort of brief update of what's going on, um, the Daily Telegraph has, has taken this on as a, an important initiative, um, really spurred on, I suppose, by the evidence and, and people like Trish, who have really been pushing, um, and Nigel, <laughs> who's been <laughs> clearly pushing. And these are things that are really, really important. This is about public empowerment. Um, and uh, we managed to publish a paper that um, has really gone quite viral, that looks at the evidence behind oximetry, um, it's now been viewed over 65,000 times um, since we put it online on Sunday. Um, so I think it's definitely reaching the mark as people realise the value of oxygen saturations in going forward. As Karen says, the letter to the system went out with the, the promise of around 150 million pounds for general practice in the community, which is um, well received, shall we say. Obviously, we don't have the GP numbers yet to really make use of that, but the, the intent is there. Number two on that list for the requirement for the spend is going to be about supporting this virtual ward, the auximetry at home model. Um, the HSNs have taken this on with gusto, thinking about stages of implementation and what that might look like across England, um, which I think is a really clever idea. So grading how, how far a, a system has implemented the COVID virtual ward strategy strategy, where the population hits are in terms of numbers of cases and where our gaps are. And this is really important for gap analyses in each region and locality. Um, and so it's a work in progress, but a fantastic intelligence tool potentially for the future. This is the paper that really showed um, quite clearly clear delineation that actually normal is not normal. So what we used to think of normal in terms of SATs are between 94 and 95% actually are associated with a significant mortality risk. And um, these are iterative uh, times, you know, we are living by our most recent evidence to think about potentially how we may need to change and flex our guidance to reflect that. Um, so what that boils down to from a mortality and ICU risk at 30 days is that as soon as you're at 92% or below, which is our current red line, you've got a nearly a third chance of ending up dead or in intensive care. And in the 93 to 94% range, it's just shy of 10%. So, um, those are kind of the lines in the sand. We have to bear in mind this was a conveyed population. So they weren't just run-of-the-mill people with oximeters, but people who were identified as sick and who called out for help from the health service. So we need to repeat this study, looking at the whole population in due course. Um, our safety netting guidance has come out or coming out within the next few days and we'll look at these lines in the sand reflective of that evidence. So 92 or below, you come to ED as soon as you can or dial 99, 93 to 94. And if it's new for you and it's continuous, so it doesn't come back or get back, get back to a normal level within an hour, you come uh, and seek help from your GP or phone 111. Um, and um, 
what we've done in this region in terms of our scale and spread is something we need to replicate times 150 potentially across England. In the future, as Karen says, we are looking at this model where we bring together the monitoring elements potentially under one banner to not reinvent the wheel in different scenarios, recognizing that people have had to get going and get started with that monitoring with whatever they currently have. Our future potentially might be a more joined up system using primary care facilities, secondary care and ambulance and potentially care home facilities to ensure that we have a general communication center type approach going forward and then agreeing with 111 and all our partners what our escalation criteria are going to be and matching and aligning that in due course so this is draft but we need to nail this um, and then thinking also broadly across the system because this is not just about primary care and thinking about what influence we can have to try and influence the flow through hospitals, through um, trying to accentuate an improved early discharge, admission avoidance, um, where possible, through our EDs and through our acute medical units, through a proper joined up systems approach with primary care and community care, and thinking about how we can help each other really, because this is a sick group of patients we need to get absolutely right on. Um, there's amazing resources that Helen Irvin and team have produced um, and this was published today by Health Service Journal which essentially is a, a, a suite of 12 educational resources that a lot of people have inputted in including videos and e-learning that will hopefully teach our band fours as well as potentially our seasoned GPs and, and consultants and nurses how to manage COVID within this new virtual world um, so it's all free and it's all available on that link um, our forum is going from strength to strength and we've published the virtual toolkit how to implement across the system um, and then we run these fortnightly auxiliary at home learning network meetings one of which is today at 3 30. Um, again do come along we keep all of the recordings and we keep all the presentations on this site um, so they're all live and finally we're at a stage where, where uh, you know, and I think of these in four main steps. We've got our clinical model nearly there. We've got implementation underway. The funding now is becoming more clear and a proper letter of the system is coming hopefully later today, which will outline exactly what that means in terms of the virtual ward auxiliary at home strategy. And as Karen says, the evaluation is underway. And this is a link to a lovely presentation on all of this. Um, but we still have work to do. And we, we have to remember that this is a not one size fits all kind of solution that actually you can do this really quickly that a bunch of resources are out there and all of those things we're trying to do to minimize mortality length of stay intensive care and admissions and optimize our outcomes and what our patients and staff go through is going to bear fruit as our early data suggests so amazing stuff but still much to do and what an exciting journey thank you very much Thank you, Matt. Um, so let's just move on to sort of some local experiences from people that are, have set these up in wave one, but are also um, doing wave two. So let's start off with uh, Caldea, who's a GP in uh, London, um, who set up um, where one of the hotspots in wave one was and had probably uh, the most experience of anybody in the country with uh, their virtual ward. Um, how are things now um, in the second wave? Thank you. Um, so I, I, I think just like yourselves, we're getting, we are in the middle of the second wave and it's question how we manage it, but just a few reflections that you may find helpful. Um, so they're all points that my colleagues have already touched on. For example, if you're coding, do definitely code suspected COVID, code for COVID diagnosed. Remember, if you're getting your pillar two results in, 
that's just coming through as a result in relation to politically positive swab result code as COVID. So at least you get a system-wide understanding of what's really going on in not just at your practice level, absolutely you can aggregate it at PCN level, local CCG or borough level, as well as region level. That's one key message. Another exercise that we're absolutely doing at this moment in time is aligning our COVID-related templates that are currently in our hot tubs and sharing them with our GPs. The reason for doing that is that we will then have a consistency of approach in relation to what information we're recording. Again, what we've done is align those codes with the recap study so it helps the evaluation processes if you want to go forward. If you want us to share those, we're more than happy to do that. And it is about that consistency of messaging because at this moment in time, it's great when you move with the enthusiasm of like-minded people. The challenge now is keeping everybody on side 100%. Another key reflection is do speak to your community colleagues. We may use the word term community, but absolutely make sure your district nurses know what to do not just at the local level, but absolutely at the strategy and your um, higher levels as well as the borough level. So again, you're linking up all the dots. Otherwise, the dilemma is that people will say, oh, this is going on out here, but actually, how is it relevant at another area? But you've got to relink that, and hence another key, key message of reflection. My other key message of reflection is absolutely watertight um, your ED handover to your hot hubs. That the nuances will be very slightly different in each area, but make sure everybody is aligned because of the fact that you're trying to um, hand over those patients that may potentially deteriorate, but they're not bad enough to go into hospital yet. But do absolutely make that watertight, make sure that your escalator care clinics are comfortable with that. And I think my final key reflection is, we've got examples of diaries, get them out there, make the patients aware. We're still coming across patients who now know how to diagnose COVID, but they don't know what symptoms or signs to look out for if they're deteriorating. And remember, this is about patient empowerment just as much as clinician empowerment. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, how many people have you got on your virtual ward at the moment? So within relation to Hillingdon, uh, we've actively had about 300 patients who've gone through that virtual ward process, but we're now escalating that across the other eight CCGs as well. So what about in wave two? So in wave two, London has been slightly quieter than other areas at this moment in time. So we're, because we had our infrastructures in place, we're managing it. But as an example, our local hospital had 40 patients on board. So it is about linking it through. And there, you know, if you take any one day, how many people would you currently have on your ward? Um, I think it's probably about 10 to 20. Okay. And I think um, across Wessex, the vast majority of practices are using the Arden's COVID template, which Arden's have made free to anybody who doesn't use Arden's as, um, as the template, which has got all the codes on. So it's about making sure other people are using those templates. Yeah. I know yeah. it sounds like a small point, but you'll be surprised. And then uh, you can pull your data. Thank I you. recognize absolutely what you're saying, that we strongly encourage people to use it for exactly that reason, so that the coding and the resources that people might find useful are there as well. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to you. Thank you. Um, Matt Hamilton, are you there? Could you tell us how things are going in Mid-Hampshire and what your experience in Wave 2 is? Sure. Uh, do you mind if I give a little bit of background? Is that all right? Yeah, or would you? Do. Okay, so I, I just wanted to give things from a very much a pragmatic general practice perspective, because as I'm sure everyone's finding out, we're all completely snowed under. And there are slight differences between the first and second wave, as Karen's very 
uh, aptly pointed out. Um, uh, so obviously in, in April time, we, we set up our virtual ward and evaluated that. Um, and it's based on a, sort of a serendipitous first-hand experience of a 70-year-old a, a, a married couple who had a pulse oximeter. Uh, they, they had suspected COVID and they were absolutely petrified about going to hospital. But uh, through the use of this one parameter, uh, we were able to persuade them to and, and they received supportive therapy and thankfully recovered. Um, but we are really worried about that over-reliance on blood oxygen levels as we still are slightly and, and so there's that evolving evidence on, uh, on how to use it as, as, as best as possible. And also the unintended consequences of calling out uh, the, the paramedics when, when the oxygen saturations are low. However, from the first wave, we've, we've shown that both our clinicians and our patients find this service really useful and, and really helpful. And we had four admissions to hospital, three admissions uh, to A&E, um, all recovered, no unintended consequences, and almost 100% satisfaction, although there are a couple of patients where it did uh, increase their anxiety levels. Um, what I was really keen to point out, though, is that this doesn't need to be a complex system. You don't need to start using lots and lots of new tools. And actually, we used the, the heuristic um, tool team routine, which was developed by James Shaw and his team. And this really helped us understand the process from the clinician's perspective and from the patient's perspective. So we know we're predominantly treating uh, older patients. We know they're unwell. Uh, they're not really wanting to learn new, new processes and ways of doing things. So we went with the, the, the lowest denominator. We went with a paper-based diary because we knew it was um, a versatile solution and we knew it minimized digital exclusion. That doesn't mean that technology can't be built upon it. That just means that if you haven't got the ability to use apps, if you haven't got other uh, means of recording things, you've got that paper diary to fall back on. And that's worked really well for us and for our patients um, to date. Um, in terms of for uh, clinicians, we knew we're all completely snowed under, like I say, and we wanted to use something that minimized any changes to our routine. So we went with the EMIS appointment slots, we went with the Arvid COVID template and made sure there was consistency of uh, coding. And then we went with the Accurex remote monitoring Flory uh, uh, more lately as that's come on board. And there's minimal learning with these, there's maximum flexibility and easy scalability. And we've used both our administrators to do the sending out packs, uh, uh, getting packs back in, and then our clinical on the, on the day team uh, to consider which patients need to be on the ward and whether they need to be actively or passively monitored. How is, so going between wave one and wave two, it does present massive differences and challenges. So our workload pressures have greatly increased where uh, it's, it's harder to determine what's COVID and what's not COVID. There's more difficulties around testing with more testing being available. And there's this understanding that we need a seven day non-siloed service so going forward, there is a much clearer need for a, uh, a, a bigger, scaled up uh, model of, of practice. And uh, like Karen said, the AHSN has provided pros and cons for all different types of models in their toolkit. Uh, and that's well worth looking at. Thank you.
Thanks. Now, how many people have you got on your virtual board today? Uh, so we're contacting two to three a day. I think we've got a handful, maybe uh, six or seven. I'd need to see for example, there's been some really tricky conversations based on low SATs and patients still not wanting to go into hospital. Um, and, and the reason for not wanting to go into hospital? Uh, past experience, um, uh, understanding that they're unwell, but just um, feeling that things may improve uh, with conservative treatment. So what it has done is it's promoted those discussions about we know this is the likely prognosis and having really down-to-earth uh, discussions with the patient. Okay, thanks. Um, can we then move on to Caroline, who's a GP um, in North Hampshire, um, who's um, led one of the early uh, first wave ones with a different model, but um, your experience in wave two and what's going on what, what have you learned? Things have changed? Yeah, I'm going to share my screen if that's okay. Yeah, of course it is. Okay. You just give me a nod, Nigel, if you can see that. Yeah, I can see it. So um, I won't repeat what I said last time, but as you may remember, we set up a, a quite a large collaborative hot hub in the, in the first wave. Um, we have reopened that. It's now been reopened for, for six whole days. We reopened last Monday. Um, a single hot hub based across the populations of Basingstoke and Alton, so covering 230,000 patients. Um, and and we're, we're again casting our net quite wide. Um, so we're taking all patients with fever or anosmia or respiratory symptoms. And again, mainly the rationale behind that is to keep the rest of our practices as, as safe and cold as we possibly can. We have got access, which is brilliant, to point of care COVID testing. For week one, which was last week, we had access to the Alveo test, which took an hour to get the results. Um, as of yesterday, we've now got access to a 15 minute test, which, um, which actually is so helpful, particularly for recruiting people onto the, uh, onto the virtual wards. We are only testing over 18s, that's on, on advice of the, of the paediatricians quite rightly. And we also have really good support from our local microbiologists. So um, initially we were doing some dual testing with, with viral swabs as well, just to um, um, make sure the point of care testing was valid. All patients coming through the, the, um, the assessment hub are having some baseline observations and clinical exam. And we're staffing it certainly a lot lighter than last time. That was a lesson I think we learnt from the first wave is actually, yes, we absolutely need GPs, senior clinicians in a supervisory role, but we can use more junior clinicians. Um, I've got physician associates up there. We are still looking for physician associates. They are, they are very popular at the moment. Um, booking is all direct through EMIS, as, as Matt says, and open to a number of different entry criteria. Just to give you an, an idea, we've had 173 patients through in those first six days. Um, of that, we've had to admit four through the red pathway, two amber, and we've, we've got 12 admitted onto the virtual ward. Um, and as you'll see, we've tested 46 out of, out of that cohort. Clearly very early days, but I thought it would just be helpful to see how, we're, how we got started. So working alongside that winter assessment centre and, and co-located with it, we've got the COVID oximetry at home pathway up and running. And again, that's been up and running for, for six days now. Um, it is running seven days a week um, using NHUC as our out of hours provider. And actually, obviously, we've only had one weekend, but that, that's worked very well with the, with the seven day a week follow up. 
that's being staffed. It's been led by two fantastic ANPs, but we're actually using, we've got some care coordinators on board now um, who are really valuable, particularly for people who aren't able to access some of the IT or maybe don't have mobiles. The concept is that care coordinators can put in the phone calls and the support around people that, that they will need. And as has been described before, when patients are onboarded, they're given a pulse oximeter pack with instructions linked to Matt's fantastic video, paper diary, and, and they are going to be reading, they are, they are recording their, their observations three times a day in the paper diary, although we're only touching base with them once a day. And there's very clear instructions as to what to do if there's a deterioration on those self-readings. And obviously return envelope. Um, like Matt, we're using the same um, IT solution. So we're using a single EMIS platform. Um, we're using the Accurix COVID monitoring Flory, which sends out the, uh, the automated text. Um, that we're also putting, a, we've put a single COVID oximetry at home spreadsheet together. And I'll just show you an example of that in a second, which we're, we're sharing on Microsoft Teams. And the reason for that, that was requested by all of the practices and also by our palliative care team, our Southern Health Nurse Community Nursing Team, just so there's some, some good visibility on who is on the virtual ward, particularly for the palliative care pathways. I think that's, that's really valuable. And then the monitoring, as, as Matt says, I can I probably just want to, um, to sort of re-emphasize that this, it, this doesn't have to be complex. We, we're using systems we've already got in place, but at, it, at its most basic, this is a pulse oximeter at home with somebody checking in on them. This is just an extract from, from our SOP, which I, I hope just gives a picture as to how people access the virtual ward. There is access through the Winter Assessment Hub, but also we're able, through the collaboration that Karen talked about, to allow people to access through the Amber Hub, through ED, through home visiting, through SCAS, through our community nurses, through out of hours. We should be drawing from, from all those pools to make sure we've got a, a sort of a, a, a single point. But this is our, our onboarding protocol. And this is our ongoing monitoring protocol. And I just wanted to show you this to, to really re-emphasize that this is a simple daily check-in. If they submitted their, their observations via the Accurix template, we just need to decide whether they're okay or not. If they haven't, then it's a phone call to the patient to find out if they're okay or not. And, and if not, they will fall into either AMBER for an assessment, RED for an admission, or positive, possibly the palliative care pathway. Um, and it, it shouldn't be more complex than that. Um, you have seen these before. This is all Matt's work and I'm taking no credit for it, but this is the fantastic diary that we're giving patients and also some stills really from the, uh, the video he's pulled together. And again, you will all be familiar as primary care clinicians with what the Accurix monitoring Flory looks like, but just I do find it quite helpful just to chat patients through this. This is an example, obviously we've pulled out anything patient identifiable, but this is an example of some of the data that we're collecting on a spreadsheet. And it just gives an example of what patient's journey through the, through the system looks like um, and how we're able to complete that. So we have a very clear sort of real-time idea of who's, in the, who's on the virtual ward, whether they're deteriorating, whether they're stable, and, and that's accessible in and out of hours. And I think that that's really valuable for us at the moment. And generally how, how it's going, um, the, uh, the, some of the challenges we found, and initially we had a few problems with IT with some cross-organisational booking from some of the practices, and we had a few initial bumps with, with the interface between EMIS and Accurix, but those have now been ironed out. Um, we learned quite early on with staffing that actually if we're going to offer point of care testing, we really needed a, a dedicated HCA to, to manage that or somebody to manage that. 
And also with, with those numbers moving in and out, we needed a pretty robust reception team. And, and that's a lesson we learned pretty quick. Um, testing, there was a bit of nervousness about to start with, but actually now we've got access to the rapid tests and, and our clinicians have had some basic training. Actually, we're, we're up and running with testing, which is, which is great. Um, and we, the other challenge is, is how we're managing our housebound patients. We're certainly working on that, um, but we're doing some work with SCAS on, on upskilling them to do the testing as well. But I think broadly, and actually the virtual ward part's probably been the, the more straightforward bit. Um, it, it, most of that is going very well. And as I said, it's worked really well in and out of ours. And patient feedback has been positive. Um, lots still to do. And, and I often use this slide just as a sort of holy grail to remind myself that our green bit is only really one small area of the in and out of ours and in and out of primary and secondary care. And we need to just remember the, the bigger picture. We've still got an awful lot to do, but I think, I think having, having only been going six days, it's certainly good to be up and running. Um, I won't talk anymore because I'm conscious of time, Nigel, thank you. No, that's fine, thank you very much, that's really interesting. And how many people have you got on the ward today? Twelve. Okay, that's great. Um, okay, we're going we're gonna to have some discussion in a minute. I just briefly wanted to give you a few headlines about the COVID vaccination. So you'll have read stuff in the papers, but just to be clear, there are two vaccines, one by Pfizer and one by AstraZeneca, um, which should become available um, in the next month or so. So the NHS, can you go on the next slide, please? So the NHS is being asked to um, get these established. Um, there are several vaccines in development at the moment, um, and they won't become available until they've been licensed. So the safety and efficiency will be judged before um, they're given a license. Um, it has now been agreed that there will be a COVID vaccine DES. Uh, a lot of the details have been published today, but the full DES won't be out for a uh, a few days yet. There is also £150 million, which Karen referred to earlier, which is looking to do a number of things, but particularly to expand the GP workforce over the winter to help with the COVID at home, uh, the oximetry, but also with the vaccination programme. Next slide, please. So looking at three delivery models, one is roving, which is basically housebound. So we're looking at care homes and, and uh, the residents and their staff and the housebounds. So essentially in each area we'll be working with general practice and the community providers to do the housebound and the care homes largely. We believe as an LMC that um, that will be practices who are aligned to them. In the community vaccination site, which is essentially what they're looking for from general practice, to start with they'll be, they're looking for one site per primary care network. There may be more later. This is largely because of the vaccine and the ability to deliver it at scale and um, uh, deliver the program at scale. The vaccines need to be stored at minus 80. Once they come out of those storage and delivered, they be, need to be used in a very tight time frame. And that's why um, they're looking at one site per PCM. Initially, we're going to be asked to vaccinate the, the care home and their staff, the house uh, the, um, and the over 80s and health and social care workers. So that will be phase one. And then ultimately we'll have mass vaccination sites, which will look at much bigger populations, but they're probably going to come online a bit after we have our community vaccination sites. Next slide, please. So um, these vaccination sites are going to be asked to be delivered seven days a week, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, I recognise that's going to be a challenge at practice level, 
but just think about how we can expand the workforce and make sure that not everybody's expected to work eight to eight, seven days a week. The initial vaccine that will come license is likely to be the Pfizer one, which comes in a minimum delivery of 975 vaccines, so 195 vials. And you will need to deliver that over a period of about five days because that's the shelf life. Once you put the mixative in, it only lasts for about six hours. These two vaccines will require two doses spaced at 21 or 28 days apart. And I've given the priority and there will be an item of service fee paid per vaccine given. Um, and also some people have been worried about the indemnity. Uh, people delivering this program will be covered under the CNSGP, the state-backed indemnity. Next slide, please. Um, so I think I've covered most of that. You will get additional PPE, you'll get additional consumables to be able to um, deliver the programme and there will be training being given and also some uh, quite a lot of national guidance will come. Okay, can you take the slides down, please? That is literally just a quick run through some stuff to do with COVID vaccine because as well as the here and now and the importance of the COVID vaccination monitoring clearly, uh, COVID uh, oximetry at home, the vaccination is, is clearly critical. So can I come to our panel and just go through some of the questions we're being asked? So um, some people have asked, they quite like to have the pulse oximeters in their practice so they can hand out, but these are being given out at scale. So what, why can't practices just have them and hand them out? Karen, would you like to answer that? Yeah, thanks, Nigel. Um, so you can have them in practices. Your CCG will be coordinating the application for the oximeters to come centrally um, to be drawn down from their team. Um, and then they should distribute them out to practices. So there's no reason why you won't be able to onboard people um, from your own practice as well as in, from your hot hubs or your hot sites. So um, as well as from out of hours and CCGs coordinating that, Nigel. Thank you. Um, Matt Hamilton, can I ask you, who, who can refer to your virtual ward? So at the moment, it, uh, our, our reactive virtual ward in the practice is through, through on the day service. So patients will call in if they're unwell um, and we will then triage them as suspected COVID and put them on the virtual ward if we feel that's appropriate. We're also getting our, the pillar two test results through. So if there's a positive test result, and we know that patient to be at risk, we will actively uh, contact them. So um, Caroline, in, in your larger model, can CCAS and SCAS and other people refer to your virtual ward or is it, does it have to come through the GP? CCAS can refer directly into the hot hub. Um, now in, in theory, if somebody already had a um, positive COVID test, then yes, in theory, we would pass them straight from the hot hub into the virtual ward if they had the risk factors that required admission. I think, I think the two things you probably need to have admission are you need to have had a, a COVID swab and, and have the risk factors required for admission. And as long as you've, you've got those by whatever means, there wouldn't be any reason that they needed reassessment. Okay, but presumably, um, Kuldeer, you, you can't admit everybody with COVID who's in the at-risk group. So how do you prioritise them? So uh, again, it's primarily in relation to their symptomatology and where they are in relation to the timeline of the number of days of illness. Um, in our local area, we actually had over 18s, but we actually changed the threshold to include over 12s. Um, um, like I said, it's just a reflection of what we've altered the threshold in relation to Northwest London. But this moment in time, because our numbers, fingers crossed, are relatively manageable, 
is about those patients that need an assessment get assessed. It's trying to keep GP practices as cold sites and hot tubs at hot sites. Um, so it is managing that it, back to clinical acumen really is the key question. Um, okay. The most important thing is making sure the patient has a place to go to be assessed. Okay, uh, Matt and King, there's a question here, which is many of the documents in relation to remote COVID oximetry monitoring refer to the antiviral uh, remdesivir. Should this be removed in light of the HO, uh, WHO study? Um, I don't know what the WHO study says, but I'm sure you do. Um, I don't actually. Um, let me just, there's, um, there's some doubt whether remdesivir is actually going to be as good as we felt it was going to be. Right. Um, certainly in terms of recovery time, life saved, intensive care admission um, and uh, chances of developing long COVID. So out of all of them, dexamethasone still has the most evidence base behind it, but only for those who are hypoxic. Um, and uh, the, the jury is still a bit out as far as remdesivir goes. We've got a few other antivirals in the pipeline that have got promising early results. Um, and, you know, we also need to evaluate the impact of things like anticoagulation and proning. So I think there's a number of things from a community perspective. I guess one of the things I'd be interested in knowing is whether we should be giving advice to patients to start proning who are early in the onset of their illness. Certainly it's something I've been telling all my physician colleagues who've developed COVID to do, you know, to lie on their front for periods of time and practice breathing in that um, manner, as well as obviously doing their oximetry regularly. Um, it's, it's funny the way s small things might make a big difference. So, so why, does that, why does proning make a difference? <laughs> it's recruitment of alveoli. So um, that's the theory, and I'm not an anaesthetist, but um, essentially you, you, you can essentially use more of your lung capacitance in that position that promotes, I guess, um, good positive effects in terms of alveolar recruitment and some goes some way towards combating the VQ mismatch issues. So what, what's different now? So if, if I sent a patient into you with COVID who's um, you know, becoming hypoxic and well in, in wave one, you know, the, the perception, which may not be correct, is, you know, you would admit them, uh, they might go onto a COVID ward, they might um, escalate through to critical care and then if necessarily be ventilated. But, you know, we proned, we, or you, you got them uh, proning and, you know, ventilation or CPAP. But, yeah. you know, um, the, the, I won't say there wasn't a lot you could do, but, you know, you, you, you watch the, um, the, the progress of these things. Now you've got, so I send somebody into, into you today who's got COVID and starts deteriorating. What is different? So what, so are you- We're seeing them, uh, so firstly, we're seeing them 10% earlier. Right. So instead of SATs in their 70s or 60s, we're seeing in the high 80s, early 90s. That is life-saving just in itself. So we so, know from the mortality difference, you're looking at about 33% ICU stroke death within 30 days if you're below 92% compared to, um, you know, around just under 10% if you're 93 to 94%. That's the first thing. Second so thing is... Matt Hamilton and uh, Caroline doing in their virtual uh, ward yeah. That oximetry monitoring is making a difference already. Massive, massive difference. Okay. The second thing is the, the treatments. So you get anticoagulation as soon as you hit the front door because we know the index of VTE and you know, pulmonary emboli is massive and that's a huge component to this. Dexamethasone is life-saving if you have an oxygen requirement. 20% improvement 
in patients non-ventilated who have an oxygen requirement in terms of survival. And then you have the, the chances of full recovery, intensive care, admission, avoidance, if you use drugs like dexamethasone, potentially remdesivir, also azithromycin is coming to the fore in terms of an evidence base, and three or four other over-the-counter antivirals, some of which are inhaled. Um, so there's huge amounts of developments that are ongoing that are probably going to radically change what we do. And, and, and last but not least, it's learning from the past. It's learning that you don't stick a ventilate, stick a patient on a ventilator paralyzed as soon as they come in with really low oxygen saturations. You give everyone a go where possible on non-invasive ventilation, something that can be done in any normal hospital environment. And that saves lives as well, because we know the harms that full ventilation caused. So our mortality rates nearly halved already compared to first peak. And, you know, we've learned on our system, on our feet, it's not one thing, multiple interventions. And I think what we're doing with the virtual ward is going to deliver more life safe than anything else in terms of ventilators or any drug. Okay, that's, that's really encouraging and really impressive. Um, Karen and Matt, any idea how many virtual wards are up and running in the country or even locally? <laughs> So, so I, I think, so, so yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess at the number. Uh, Nigel, I think lots of practices already doing this in in a small way while we start to centralise the resources that that we have. Um, and I think there's a number that are now operating at scale up and down the country. I'll I'll try and find out some numbers, and we are certainly mm. trying to start mapping that centrally so that we can see where where the activity is. All I can say is that. Um, we are we, we are definitely seeing this starting to take off, even though, even in a very small way. That that's still really important. We are, we're trying to map it across the southeast at the moment with numbers of index numbers of cases. So that kind of graph in the um, sorry the map I've really hurried us through um, shows the index cases of COVID across England, and then mapped on the right hand side of that was um, the numbers of COVID virtual wards set up. Um, but we, we, we have over 650 people now who are members of our forum and about 100 to 150 people at each learning event. Those are all people that are setting this up. So I think, it, as Karen says, it's taking off like wildfire. That paper has been read. So the auximetry paper has been read 65,000 times since Sunday. Um, so so, so which, are, which are the areas of the country that are leading on this? I, I would say where the need is. So although I'd love to say we're doing amazingly down here, at the moment we haven't had the numbers. So, you know, if you look at the Northwest, they've, you know, we've been doing weekly webinars with them now for two, two months in terms of setting up their COVID virtual wards. And, and it's a bit of a tale of two cities. So Liverpool, amazing people, amazing population, amazing colleagues, but were not so quick in, in, in terms of the universality of their city to get this up and running compared to Manchester. And what you're seeing is slightly differences, slight differences in terms of hospital occupancy and flow and flow across the emergency care pathway, which I'm trying to do a deep dive in at the moment because I suspect, you know, if we get this right, we can keep our emergency services going. Essentially, we can we can do what we wanted to do, which is protect the NHS, but most importantly, protect patients first yeah. and foremost. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Karen, the, what's the balance between you know, me contacting at the, at the CCG and saying, can I have some pulse oximeters in my practice to hand out to patients versus using them to admit to the virtual ward? I mean, I assume the, we don't want to just distribute them all to every practice and then uh, lose them. So I, I think it's, so I think, I think it's down to local systems, Nigel. So, um, you know, practices will be onboarding patients 
the discussion, um, you know, when they get the positive pillar two. So I think that's where it come, you need them in practices. Um, then a consolidation of a number of oximeters into hot sites where practices are working together at scale and that, you know, sometimes as big as Caroline is describing, sometimes it might be five or six practices together, but consolidating their oximeters into one place. Um, I think getting them back to the, um, the practices is really important. It's difficult to get them back necessarily to all the hot hubs, but get them back to your local practice that, and we are seeing them returned so that they, and what we're saying is keep them for three days in a sealed container and then that we've got instructions for um you know decontaminating them with a cleanal wipe and so on and then recirculating them back so i think we're going to see oximeters ev everywhere i mean they'll be a, they'll be available and lots of patients are already buying them themselves so i talked to a patient yesterday who was on the ward that we put on in in our local practice in my practice and he'd already bought one himself so and i think we're going to see increasingly that people are going to be um getting their own supplies so so the ccg will coordinate and they will send them out to pcns and pcns will then distribute them according to where they're needed in in local areas okay that's really helpful um somebody's asking about where the uh, covid uh, wards are going to be well by the end of this month we expect them to cover the whole of wessex i mean there is a national ask to cover the whole of the country but the, as, as matt says these are spreading uh particularly you know if you look at the areas who've got high levels it's become essential to have them but you know we, we should have them across the whole of um, the three counties by the end of this month um caroline what's the sensitivity and specificity of your um covid testing the 15 minute test so I understand it's I understand that sensitivity is high, uh, 98, 99%. We are dual testing at the moment that against the viral swabs just so they can see how it performs in the community. Uh, in, in the labs, it works. Um, it, it's very sensitive and specific, I believe. But that's why we're dual testing the first 20. Um, but um, I think I think the, 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 the sensitivity is high, specificity a little bit lower. Um, but we're certainly able to pick people up. I, I think I probably would add to, to that question, though, because there was something else about if we still clinically very much suspect COVID, um, we will enter onto the virtual ward and probably re-swab. Um, so I think clinical decision-making still needs to be paramount. Um, somebody's asked about the vaccination models. I think there is a degree of flexibility in how you deliver them, um, but I would wait till the site's specification comes out. The problem with um, the drive-through is you need to wait 15 minutes before you can drive after you've had the vaccination, so it's going to cause a challenge. Um, somebody's asked about the storage. Well, the um, the 190 odd vials that are going to come. That's why um, one site's going to be used. But again, it's going to need the um, agreement of how you're going to store the vaccine and make sure we can do it safely and not waste it because it will be like gold dust. And there will be a PSD, a patient-specific directive, produced as well as a PGD. And if there isn't, we'll, we'll talk about the PSD and make sure there is one. Um, the, somebody's asked about the fee. If only, the fee is only paid if the second injection is given. Not quite. That's not right. You will get it if you just deliver one. And if there are a number of exclusions, if patients decide they don't want a second one, then you will still get paid. Um, Clinical waste, well, yeah, we're going to have to work through clinical waste for all of these things. I mean, have you had any problems in the hot sites in terms of clinical waste? Uh, we've had to request extra clinical waste bins, absolutely, for the hot sites, but um, that's worked well. As long as we anticipated it and requested it, then, then yes, those have been delivered and they're being collected. So um, 
Goldie, what about those people? You know, we, we read about people who have negative tests, but after about the third or fourth one become positive. So do you only have people who are COVID positive on your virtual ward, or will you admit people who you suspect of having COVID? Um, absolutely. So personally, my personal steer has always been about clinical acumen and making sure if a patient needs monitoring, they need monitoring. Um, purely because, as we've said, experience has shown that sometimes you may get an equivocal result and then the week after it becomes positive. And I'm sure we've all had cases where we get a positive result two weeks after the event, so to speak. Equally, antibody testing, um, they may become up positive any time up to three to six months later is our sense check at the moment. And don't forget, even the, the whole purpose of the monitoring is, is that the next person does the next step. So, for example, if as a GP you don't have pulse oximetry, you refer them to the hot tub. They do the pulse oximetry, but equally the hot hop refers to ED and gets chest x-ray done and you get the pneumonitis diagnosed. So it is about adding the value to that patient's diagnosis going forward. Because as we all know, we're still learning about long COVID. And I keep reminding people, when people think of remote monitoring, they think it's the discharge element. Actually, this is pre-diagnosis. This is the escalation element. Um, and they're completely different cohorts of patients. So I would say if you're worried, get them checked. You know, it's like you and I would be. If I'm worried, I'd like someone to check me. Yeah. Um, Matt, um, your, your data looks really good in terms of, I'm, I'm really clear, you know, the 93, 94% below that. The only trouble is patients don't always uh, conform to that. So I've now got this patient in front of me who's got COPD. And actually their resting oxygen saturations are a bit lower than that. So how do I manage them or do I not admit them to the COVID virtual ward? No, it's a really good question. First of all, know the problem um, and make sure the patient knows the problem as well, knows what their baseline is um, and make sure the whole system is aware of what their oxygen saturations are when they're well, firstly. Secondly, um, we use a, a traffic-like system for these patients, which, which basically equates to one in 200 of the general population with abnormal, normal oxygen saturations and um, what this relates to is green or a mild deflection is one to two percent off baseline amber is three to four percent red is greater than four percent um, and that that is the sort of national guidance as far as how to escalate in the covid virtual ward or oximetry at home with patients without normal oxygen levels so really important actually if we've got pre-existing or pre yeah. uh, recordings of pulse oximetry to know what their base their, their true baseline is for them yeah, and patients are really good at knowing this. Um, so I, whenever I make a point of whenever I see a really sick patient in resus, mm. um, I will tell them what their, you know, I, I, first of all, I'll ask them what their baseline oxygen saturation is. Secondly, I'll make sure that they find out should they recover. And thirdly, if I see them in clinic, I will then check on them to make sure that they, they do know what their baseline is on discharge. And I'll also generally tell them to buy their oximeters or get their nieces or nephews to go and buy them for them. So that, that, that actually brings us on to two other questions. One is uh, somebody's asked about the managing at scale. And I think, you know, the, the presenters have um, very ably said how when we initially set this up, you could do it on a practice level. This has now got to be delivered 24-7 and at bigger scale. But we mustn't lose that clinical involvement and, and build on the work that um, colleagues on this um, webinar have done. But that's also where IT comes in. So I absolutely agree with Matt. What we shouldn't do is rush into an IT solution that excludes lots of people who can't use um, digital solutions. Uh, but there is money coming from NHSX and there are 
um, solutions out there which we're looking at working across all three counties to try and support this so so that's one thing um, we, Karen we, we you, you mentioned it briefly earlier so you can go onto Amazon and buy a pulse oximeter very similar to the ones we're using for 20 pounds so I can see that many of our patients are going to buy their own and they're going to start phoning up and say hold on a minute um, you know my pulse oximetry is xy any any particular advice you can give to practices or virtual wards about that um i mean they, they need to have um you know some sort of assurance on them we had a discussion matt didn't we about this with the national team about you know a, a, a level of inaccuracy or accuracy between different brands matt do you want to come in on that because we there was quite a protracted discussion wasn't there yeah, so as Coldier says, it's all about having a CE kite mark. The ones we're sending out have all come from procurements. So they've all been tested um, by NHS procurement um, who've, who run tests on every bit of kit we get, essentially. Um, but secondly, we are, we are going to do large-scale evaluation studies because quite honestly, this gives us an incredible opportunity to do that anyway, to actually test the value of these in general normal life. Um, so there's huge amounts of, of studies that are going on to test this in normal people, in people that potentially have COVID or other diagnoses, um, and also in people in exertion as well. So, so do you tell people to sit down, rest for five minutes, then test what their resting oxygen saturations are? Well, I don't, Matt, I don't know if you want to speak on this, because Matt right. Hamilton really developed this for us nationally. So having this single parameter that you're potentially asking some paramedics to come out and spend an hour with the patient, you have to be utterly clear that they've got as accurate a reading as possible. So we gave them a, a seven-step process that would minimize the chance or, or mitigate against any inaccuracies. Um, I think what can happen, though, is... is uh, I've, I've found that when if you do a video call with them and you get them to sit up and get them a bit more um alert then then the readings you do find they are slightly higher so there is a slight discrepancy between resting and 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 getting the lights on getting everything moving and seeing what their readings are um but we've tried to be as clear as possible in the um the patient information leaflet and it's gone through my eight-year-olds it's gone through um a, a reading checker just to make sure it's as easy to read as possible and, and what, what place does then do you have um, in terms of doing the 40-step test or the desaturation? Does that help at all? I mean, that's certainly the, the, the sit-stand test for the minute we certainly use in, in practice and it's easy to do on a, a video call as well. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's not in the diary, but it's something that you can do on your, if you're doing a daily call with them. Okay. Um, the other map, does that, does that help at all or does it just frighten us because the oxygen sats drop even more? No, it's really useful. I, it's really useful when you're, when you're in the position of trying to convince a patient, a difficult patient sometimes, that they need to come in. That's what I found. Um, so I've had a few people that have been hovering around the 90% the mark who quite, can't quite see the logic of coming in. And the frustrating thing is I was sitting on all this evidence to know that their mortality was going to be low. But it's difficult sometimes communicating to a patient who's scared of you know, catching COVID if they don't know whether they've got it or not, or indeed coming into hospital. So I found it useful to get them to walk, just to help push them over the line to realize they are sicker than they felt. And, you know, we've seen people that have dropped into to their 60s 
in terms of oxygen saturation. You can see the cyanosis developing. Um, and then when they come back, sometimes they're breathless. Sometimes they're not even breathless. It, the scary part is sometimes it's just the sats that drop. And that's why it's so valuable. And there was a study I've just reviewed that hopefully will be published that looked at um, normoxic patients with a suspected COVID diagnosis against patients with all other causes of respiratory decompensation. It's a small study, only about three or 400 patients. And what they found was that there is extra predictive value in patients that drop their oxygen saturations, having had a normal oxygen level compared to other diagnoses. So an odds ratio essentially of about 3.3 in terms of predictive value of patients who develop um, hypoxia on exertion compared to those that don't and the presence or absence of COVID as a diagnosis. So you talked about VTE a minute ago. So should we be putting all COVID positive patients on aspirin? Um, yeah, they all be really yeah. prior to admission? Difficult question. So there is a group that's formed to look at this specifically. Um, we were going to look at dexamethasone and oxygen initially, but the statement from the CMO has stated we should not be using dexamethasone in community settings. Um, so it's now, it's now moved just purely to oxygen at home and uh, low molecular weight heparin. Um, so we, we, we don't think there's enough evidence for aspirin, but potentially clexane or indeed an oral anticoagulant at a low dose might have real added value. Okay, and the the gap between the vaccines is twenty one or twenty eight days, yeah. depending on which vaccine, and you shouldn't give them within seven days of a flu vaccination. So that's the latest yeah. advice that's come out. Um, what about these pulse oximeters that are on your Apple Watch? How accurate are they? Not good. Yeah. Terrible. Okay. Dangerous. Okay. And I, I think dangerous is the best description because yeah. we falsely reassured one way or the other. Um, our medical, so the, uh, Steve Powis had an Apple Watch with, which could do it, and he was he was reading at about ninety percent when you know we had a pulse oximeter as well that showed he was well above ninety five percent. So you didn't admit him to. Uh, I I just I would be really scared about them and not trust them at all, to be honest. Um, they, they're good for heart tracings in terms of monitoring, and we've had a great deal of success at picking up atrial fibrillation with them, but um, not, not for this. Um, any of the three sites, um, a lot of the um, documentation we've seen is, is in English, not in other languages. Have you had problems uh, with other languages? Has, has, have you got stuff that's translated into different languages? So I've got a Punjabi version more than happy to circulate. <laughs> I keep circulating each time. Um, and that's been agreed by all the Gurdwaras across the UK, so it's the same version. Right, okay, that's useful to know. Caroline? Um, I'm, I was going to pass over to Matt because I think his leaflet has been translated. I haven't used it yet, but Matt, anything to add? Uh, so yeah, so, well, uh, certainly from the animation side of things, we've, uh, we've got a quote with, uh, for converting it into different languages, uh, and so just waiting on the complete final version before that's done. Okay, it's just past two, so I'm going to quickly go through each of the panel members to a last reflection. So I'll go down from top to bottom. Karen, any last comments? Um, ju just now is the time. I mean, we, we still are rising cases. I don't think it's, a, it's as scary as it might sound in terms of the numbers. So just get going, even if it's just very small within a practice and a PCN first, as, as your local area builds around you. Caroline? That's exactly what I was going to say. Just just get started. Don't be frightened of it. Make, make some links with your local teams as well, because actually it needs to be collaborative when we're doing this all together. Matt Hamilton? 
Uh, keep it simple uh, and the same as your routine. Use the mnemonic uh, tool team routine. Matt? I can't add anything to that other than a massive thank you for all your efforts to keep patients safe. Cool, dear. Share the leaflet with the patients, empower them as well. Okay, um, can I thank everybody for joining? Can I thank our panel today, not only for joining today, but can I just give an enormous um, word of thanks to them for all the work they're doing in establishing this and putting their expertise and experience. It is really invaluable. Uh, so thank you very much. Hopefully today uh, has been useful to people who've joined the webinar. The fact we got up to 287 at one point, uh, I think probably demonstrates that this is a topic which is not only really important, but interesting um, and something that we all need to learn more about. So thank you very much. Uh, we will make the recording available to anybody. And I think we'll also, um, if the panel uh, are prepared to do it, we'll probably have another follow-up as we go through uh, another uh, three or four weeks so that we can just have a sort of stock take and see where we are then. Thanks very much. Um, have a useful rest of the day and thank you very much. Bye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.